Listeners, I want to talk to you today about Gaia GPS. I love Gaia GPS. This past weekend, I went hiking with my wife and our child outside of Salida, Colorado, and I was in an area that had really bad cell reception, but I didn't worry because I had downloaded our route to my Gaia GPS app. And throughout our hike, I knew exactly where I was and my distance to like water stops, campgrounds, other trails, and most importantly, back to the car. And we made it, we had a great time, and I had the peace of mind of knowing exactly where I was. Now, as you know, premium account with GPS is included in the Outside Plus bundle. And right now you can get a 12 month subscription to Outside Plus for $8.25 a month. And that gets you access to stuff like Gaia GPS, coaching advice from today's plan, event discounts from Roll Massif, a subscription to Outside Magazine, a subscription to Velo News Magazine, two Velo Press books, and the list goes on and on. You can learn more, of course, by going to velonews.com forward slash Outside Plus, and now I'm going to navigate you on to today's podcast. Welcome back to the Vela News Podcast. Fred Dreyer coming to you on another busy Tuesday here in the home offices. Uh, apologies in advance for if we hear any more crying children in the background. That was real fun last week. I think we may have to try and incorporate that into the podcast as sort of the official like ding to get us to move on to topics. Uh, we have a great podcast coming up today. Second half of the show, as I promised Last week, I have delivered. I have an interview with Jennifer Valenti, who's going to talk to us all about her Olympic championship win, her background coming up in that San Diego cycling scene, and some other topics. We're really psyched to have Jennifer uh, on the podcast. And, and like I said, I knew, I knew I'd be able to get her. I think she was just on like airplanes and stuff like getting, getting back, but we're thrilled to catch up with her. Before we get to that, though, we have so much to talk about from the Vuelta a España, which kicked off over the weekend, and we are recording this slightly an hour or so after stage four. Fabio Jakobsen just took his big first World Tour win back after his crash. There were tears, there were hugs, there were smiley face emojis and all sorts of uh, celebrations uh, for him, and just a really great story. And we're going to talk all about Jakobsen, the GC picture, what it's like at the Welta this year with my co-host this week, Andrew Hood. Andy, Last week, we got you in the mellow, chill, post-vacation vibes. This week, it's my turn because, listeners, take note, I have been off since Friday just having some, like, chill, relaxing family time, which, hey, when you have a two-year-old, nothing is very chill or relaxing. But uh, I'm coming back into the Vela News universe after a few days off. Do I look rested recharged shimmer in my eye and just ready to dive back into the world of pro cycling fred you don't look like a day over 40 or maybe it's a few, a few days over 40 i'm not quite sure no where you went down to, down to salida i love that part of colorado I love yeah it down there down in salida colorado there was some cycling some hiking a lot of time at hot springs um and just sort of relax recharge again dog days of summer everyone get your vacations and i think schools are already starting this week so if you haven't done so uh, to get out there, uh, but I'm, I'm ready to just dive back into it. But because I was off hoodie, I missed the opening three stages of the Welta. I did go back and watch 
sort of the action from Picon Blanco. But catch me up to speed here from a GC perspective. How are we looking? Yesterday was the big summit finish to Picon Blanco. Some guys thrived. Some guys got spat out the back. The GC picture is not set, but it's kind of coming into view. What are some of the GC storylines that are popping out after uh, four stages of the Welta? Yeah, it's been an interesting start. We had the Picon Blanco, you know, a first category summit finish, day three of a Grand Tour, you know, early by any standards. You know, the Giro, sometimes you'll see Stage four, stage five, you know, they've had Mount Adna quite early uh, in the Giro. The two are pretty rare to see a big climb like that in the, until the end of the first weekend. Uh, so a lot of nerves and expectations going into yesterday's uh, summit finish there in northern Burgos. But there was a real strong headwind. And I think they really tamped down a lot of the kind of uh, aggression and action we might have normally seen more more of that had it not been quite so windy on the summit of the, of the climb there. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the big takeaways, you know, Premier Roglic coming out very strong. You know, with him, it's always like, you know, if a Grand Tour is two and a half weeks long, you know, he'd probably win about four or five already. It seems like he just, he's kind of that rider just doesn't quite have the gas to make it all the way to the finish line in three weeks. Because remember last year, you know, that last summit finale, Carapaz almost had him against the ropes there. Um, so, but right now he's looking great. Olympic champion came out guns ablaze and won that uh, kind of 7K kind of prologue style race on Saturday. Race started real late, didn't start till seven. Uh, Roglic didn't go off till quarter to nine. You know, quite a late start. Took the heat, you know, edge off the heat a little bit there. A lot of talk to the heat and the wind were going to be big factors. And so far, hasn't been too bad. It's been warm. It's been in the upper 80s, low 90s, mid 90s maybe. Um, but the wind and that extreme heat have not yet been a factor. It started kicking up today, late in today's stage, stage four. You know, out in these, these big flats of Spain, you know, there's no trees. There's nothing out there. So when the wind kicks up, it could really kick up in tomorrow's stage going into stage five, which would be on the Wednesday. Uh, perhaps by the time you listen to this, we might have seen some echelons in the race already. Yeah, this is like spaghetti Western territory, right? I was checking out our colleague Gregor Brown's Instagram, and he stopped off at some ranch out there where they filmed some Clint Eastwood movies. And, you know, just looks exactly like northern New Mexico or kind of like southeastern, south, southwestern Colorado. You know, it was like not a tree, real arid, some shrubs and bushes. And you could just imagine like Clint Eastwood riding on uh, on a horse. They're shooting bad guys. A lot of a lot of that. Um, those Westerns were shot down in Talavera, like down in uh, southern Spain and Almeria. But there was part of uh, the good, the bad and the ugly was ah. the movie that was shot up there uh, in northern Spain. And um, yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty dramatic country, actually, when uh when I was driving after the stage the other day, you know, the sun was going down, the moon was up. It was just a spectacular landscape. You know, it's just unlike anywhere else in Europe, really, you know, it's just kind of arid, big, wide open plains, not a lot of trees, just some rolling, almost plateau-like country. And, uh, you know, the French say uh, Africa, you know, starts at the Pyrenees. <laughs> so if we were to apply the good, the bad and the ugly to the Picon Blanco summit, I would say, you know, in your good category, you have Roglic. Um, he smartly, wisely let the jersey go. Rain Tarame, who won the stage, now is the leader of the Welta. And the plucky Intermarsh Wanty Gobert team is going to see how long they can defend that lead. Uh not that it's not going to be that much longer, but uh, Roglic is in good standing. Egan Bernal looks like he's in pretty good situation. Um, the movie star trio of Enric Mas, Alejandro Verde, and Miguel Angel Lopez also up there. Can't wait to see how they find a way to screw that up. And um, some of the other Chicone Landa is not in a, a bad shape. The bad 
I think we could say the bad might be Adam Yates and Richard Carapaz and maybe uh, Hugh Carthy as well. The ugly, unfortunately, friend of the podcast, we love him despite uh, his ugly ride on that day, was uh, Sepkos, who lost a lot of t- time. But it, it sounds like, it really sounds like, you know, they are rallying the troops around Roglic. He's the GC leader. Um, you know, what was what do you make of the GC picture right now? And especially this Ineos three-headed monster that seems to have lost a couple heads. You know, there were some interesting comments today from Bernal after the stage saying that, that the Welt is a very different kind of race than, say, the, the Tour, where the Tour is very controlled, very calibrated. Everyone has their plan. And he was saying that, man, it's the end of the season. People are coming in with different levels of preparation. Some people are coming in like him, relatively fresh, not having raced a lot since racing the Giro, whereas like his teammate Carpaz and a lot of others who did the tour in Welta, different levels of fatigue, different levels of preparation, different levels of ambition. And like you were saying, I think last week, just different levels of real kind of motivation. You know, how much, how bad do you want something? So you're going to probably see a lot of guys maybe just poof and just, you know, lose time one day when you might not expect it. And part of that might just be mad it's at the end of the long season and uh, it kind of bites at the end of the tail. Uh, but, you know, Bernal is getting through so far so good. Uh, you know, Carapaz uh, lost, uh, you know, couldn't quite hang on to the favorites there on the Picon Blanco and in, ended up getting also a 22nd time penalty for like an illegal feed, taking a water bottle too late in the race. Uh, so that's time. It's going to be hard to get back, especially, you know, the whole context of this Welta is this quite long 33-kilometer time trial at the end of the race on the very last day. That's what I think Roglic has in the back of his mind. In fact, he was saying, yeah, I was happy to get rid of the red jersey. In fact, if I don't take it back until the very last day in Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, I'll be very happy with that. What do you make of Movistar? So, Enric Mas, Miguel, Miguel Angel Lopez, and Valverde all separated by 12 seconds uh, on GC, fifth, sixth, and seventh place. They looked really good on Picon Blanco. There was a curious moment when Enric Mas attacked out of the group, and it was Miguel Angel Lopez who like, chased after him. But um, what do you make of this trio? Who's going to be the first one to start playing the teammate role? And um, how ultimately do we think Movistar is going to screw this one up? Yeah, good question. Yeah, I noticed that too. Um, it's not a good look when your when your teammate kind of chases you down and closes down that gap to Moss. Kind of wondering if there's some words were said on the bus and say, "Hey, it'd be great for the net, new next Netflix uh, documentary that comes out next year." Um, but yeah, I mean, I mean, Valverde is already you know waving the flag. He goes, "I'm not here for the GC." Um, he'd like to win a stage. He said, "I think he's trying to stay in the race." You know, that gives them that kind of extra layer of the tactic, technical game that they can play in terms of sending runners up the road because maybe he's not, Valverde's not racing to win, but he's going to be getting in the way of people that want to move up on GC. So even just having them there in the top 10 is going to help Movistar in the long run. Um, but yeah, we'll see how much gas uh, Moss has in the tank. I mean, he, he really dug deep in that tour. He wanted to be on the podium. I think he ended up sixth. You know, uh, Lopez ended up leaving the tour, so he might actually be in a little bit better shape. But uh, I think it's pretty important for Movistar to get on the podium during this wealth. It's been a few years since they've been on a podium. And they have been one of the most consistent Grand Tour teams of the last several years. But, um, you know, I think we talked about it last week. You know, all the, the kind of the franchise writers are gone. Valverde's fading out. Landa and Nairo, all those other guys are off the team. So now it's like the new face of the team, Moss. And Lopez, you know, they have to deliver at anything, I think, less than a podium will be disappointing. But like you said, 
they're renowned for uh, creating some some self-inflicted wounds sometimes. Yeah, I think the challenge there is, you know, man, you mentioned it beforehand, this entire Welta is seen through the context of that final long team uh, final long time trial, and neither one of these guys are great time trialists. It's sort of like I was going to ask you, like between Moss and uh, Lopez, who's the worst time trialist? So you got to figure that both of these guys, their modus operandi is going to be attack in the mountains which is good and that's great. They're both very good climbers. But if there's not a clear delineation of like, who are we riding for? I could see this scenario playing out in subsequent summit finishes where like one guy's like, no, I want the team to work for me. Like, I'm not going to let Moss get away or, you know, I have my own ambitions, which could ultimately torpedo that podium ambition because if you're dragging guys back up to Enric Moss and those guys have a much better time trial, then, you know, you're just sort of shooting the team's podium ambitions in the foot. So how Movistar either fixes this or approaches some of these big summit finishes with these two great climbers, um, that is going to be a really interesting storyline to see because both of these guys, I mean, they're not the exact same rider, but they're both very good climbers. And so you figured that they're both trying to like gain as much time as possible on the summits before they get to the time trial. Yeah, it's been interesting talking to riders uh, just the first couple of days of the race, how really everyone is really on edge about the fear of echelons. Uh, they call them abinicos in Spanish. And that's even Bernal was saying that today, that every team knows that you can win or lose a race like the Welta almost more with a a, 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 a crash or, or a split in the peloton because remember that's how Chris Froome lost the Welta to Nairo Quintana. Very similar scenario, big time trial at the end of the race. Quintana, you know, even the elite climbers, when you drop the field, you're only going to gain 15, 20, 30 seconds. It's pretty rare these days, with the exception of a guy like Pogarcia, they can like gain multiple minutes in a summit finale. So everyone's like really tense, really nervous about these flat transition stages. And there's a few more in the back end of the race in that second week uh, down in the med and some of those interior stages where it kind of kicks into Andalusia. It can get very windy there. And everyone is just really nervous about making sure they're not caught out and if someone is caught out, they want to pile on because they know that can be a race-making moment. Yeah, I mean, that was the most thrilling stage of last year's Welta was the crosswind stage when Roglic got caught out and it was this really tense few hours of racing made for great TV. And it was one of those days where as a fan, you're watching and you're like, that looks so hard. That looks so unbelievably painful and hard. Um, well, that's it, Andy Hood. I buried the lead here. You are at the Welta. Well, you are briefly home and you're heading back. You were there the first three days and then you'll be back. Um, you know, you're at the race. You're talking to people. Give us a sense of how different from the Tour de France this year's Welta feels and like what are so what are people talking about on the ground there I mean they're talking about echelons they're talking about probably COVID-19 stuff like that uh, give us a sense for what it was like to to be at the race one of the one of the big uh, takeaways for everybody is that the fans are back and it sounds like a cliche fans are back it's great for cycling blah 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 when you do talk to the riders you know they really it really they said you know it was really weird racing last year without fans of the road. I mean, I know the Welta last year did have some public, uh, but really this year, the fans are pretty much back open rain. You know, there are some limitations on social distancing, but in terms of where the fans can go, the only thing that's really closed off to the fans right now and the media are the team buses. They're still kind of imposing that bubble concept around the team paddock area. But, uh, you know, you go on the road, you know, the starts and finishes are packed out pretty much, you know, kind of traditional size uh, fans are, you know, back and forth. 
And, you know, writers are really just saying, you know, how much they like it. And they're kind of realizing how much they missed having the fans. You know, some some writers might say, you know, it's a little more dangerous sometimes with fans, especially in a hectic sprint or, you know, some of these kind of, uh, you know, mountaintop finales where the fans are getting in your face with flags and waving stuff around. But uh, overall, everyone's like really kind of happy to see the fans back at the races. And, uh, you know, they, they feed off of it. You know, it's like I was talking to Chad Hager. He goes, it was weird, you know, racing last year riding up a mountain with nobody around. He goes, it kind of made you realize how much you do kind of as a cyclist do kind of feed off that adrenaline of just having, you know, thousands of crazy people going, venga, 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 you know, it kind of lifts your spirits, I can imagine, on a painful or category climb. Yeah, and I mean, as a viewer, it makes it that much better, too. When watching that Picon Blanco climb, I mean, it's so steep, so painful. I loved some of those front-on shots of Renterme attacking, and you could just see how steep it was as, like, Kenny Ellison and uh, Joe Dombrowski, who are with them, are like, their head is sort of where his his like knees are and they're not that far behind him. And you're like, Oh my God, that's a, that's a crazy ramp. But then seeing all the people on the side of the road there, instead of just this like spaghetti Western style background, it does make it, it gives it the sense of um, more importance. Um, and then just more of like an event, you know, I, I can't imagine the difference of what it would be like to race it, but even just as a fan watching it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like, ah, oh, this is, this is a sign that bike racing is back. What's the fan situation like at the start and finish villages? I mean, are people like, it, do you feel like it's back to normal or is this sort of a soft launch at the start and finishes of, of people coming back? Yeah, it's pretty much close to back to normal. Like I said, the only place the fans can't go is around the team buses. But, you know, at the podium area, I mean, they have they do have some, you know, obviously fencing and and they have to wear a mask. And when you get close into the to the area there, but, you know, Spain has like a 70 percent uh, vaccination rate. And uh, I think most Spanish fans, I mean, actually, most people in Spain are pretty respectful about the whole masking thing. So, um, you know, uh, it does feel like uh, it's almost back to normal, but there is that big fear. This whole Delta variant is kind of uh, bubbling in the background. I did talk to a lot of the teams. And, you know, they were saying how at the Welta last year, if you remember, it was the only Grand Tour not really impacted by COVID. Remember, the Giro was kind of a mess and the Tour had its issues. Last year, the Welta was fairly seamless when it came to uh, COVID because, you know, then by then cases were really kind of coming down. But now here's the Welta. Things felt almost normal during the tour. I mean, people were eating inside restaurants. Everyone's like, yeah, I can take my mask off. Now the Delta variant is kind of kicking up cases, especially in parts of Spain. And um, so the teams are really on edge. I talked to a few team managers before the Vuelta, and they were just saying, man, we're like being more careful at this Vuelta than we have in any race really since the spring this year because of the fear of, you know, because the Delta variant is, you know, if you believe what the scientists say, much more infectious infectious and much more, uh, you know, uh, is spread so much easier that there's a higher risk of an outbreak within the team. Yeah. And that's a good segue into the next question that I had for you. And um, this is, you know, a bit about a story that you've been working on that may be on the site by the time listeners hear this. But, you know, so much of the conversation here in the States is about vaccination and those who choose to get vaccinated and those who don't. And especially in the athlete side, you know, there's a number of like high profile athletes who have chosen not to get vaccinated and are being very public about the decision to not get vaccinated. And I've been really curious what that's like in the Peloton where, you know, these riders are all walking the razor's edge with their own health about like trying to stay healthy. So no one wants to get COVID-19, but 
you know, they're in, operating in these bubbles. So like they're lessening their opportunity to get it. There's a vaccine that comes along that will help them out. But, you know, for some people, hey, it makes them feel a little sick for a couple of days, which could impact training and buildups and schedules of all these things. And so I'm curious um, what the vaccination perspective has been like in the Peloton and in teams themselves. And if they've been able, you know, people, how many people have gotten it, how many people have not. And if there have been people who are like, I do not plan to get vaccinated. Yeah. I have not personally heard of too much pushback on the whole vaccine uh, concept among riders. I mean, most of the riders I know that I've been talking to this past week, most of them have been vaccinated. Uh, a few did say that it was kind of tricky in terms of trying to work it out with their uh, race schedules because we have heard stories of you know people getting pretty uh, heavy reactions when they do get vaccinated. So that has been an issue. If you're at a training camp, if you're going into a race, you don't want to get vaxxed uh, right before that because you might have two, three, four days where it might impact you a little bit. Of course, uh, it would impact their performance on the bike. Um, but most of the teams that I talked to, you know, they're encouraging their riders to get vaccinated and their staff. But in Europe, they have kind of a, you know, they cannot, um, a, a company cannot force their employees to vaccinate. Um, there's someone, it's not quite clear exactly what the rules are, and I'm still waiting to hear back from the UCI. But from what my sources are telling me is that the UCI cannot, by law, apply some sort of like 100% vaccination rule. Um of course, the responsibility lies with the rider who's part of the team, and it's all part of this bubble concept. If you know, if one guy gets sick, then uh, the Swannies might get sick, and then the whole team could be out. So, the general feeling is um, everyone wants to get you know these vaccinated vaccinations as soon as they can if they haven't been already. There has been some issues with some riders who might be living in Europe on you know not quite on residency status that might be on a temporary work permit so they're not part of the european healthcare system and you know depending on which country you live in you can't find a vaccine in the private sector because it's all it's all going through the governments so uh there might be writers that have to go home to get vaccinated so we've heard some stories like that but um but i have not heard of a of a rider is just standing up saying, I do not want to get vaccinated. If you have heard that rider, please let me know. So there's no Kirk Cousins of the Peloton is what you're telling me. No, uh, you know, political abstainee who's like Bill Gates is trying to put a microchip in my body so that governments can track me and uh, download my data probably for like, to, you know, to sell to Dunkin' Donuts or like AT&T so they can better market to me. No one's no one's saying that. No, not at all. Not, not, not from what I could hear so far. But it has been a little bit of a whiplash, more so last year, when you say, two riders positive, team out of race. I was like, hmm, those remind me of a different time and context. But, uh, you know, now the positive has a different connotation. Yeah, that's true. Some of those COVID positive headlines or tweets that I'd see come up would be like, guys, you realize the sport that you're using this wording in, this phrasing in? Like, maybe specify that positive for COVID-19 and uh, not, not, not the good stuff. Uh, well, that's really interesting. You know, I, I think that's a story we're going to continue to follow. I mean, it is a story that's much broader than cycling um, in general. Uh, just, you know, athletes vaccinations, competition schedules, and uh, and what it means as these sports try to return back. Um, we're going to be continuing to cover the Welta here on the site. Again, we're recording this Tuesday. Stage four was flat. Stage five is flat. But we got some mountains coming up Thursday, Friday into Sunday. So we do have some uh, GC stages. And I think that by the next time we link up 
uh, a week from now, the GC picture will be even more clear. Um, Last thing before we hear from Jen Valente, you know, Fabio Jakobsen has the big emotional win today. That's a story that we've been following, you know, his recovery over the last year. I mean, as a journalist, seeing him win and sort of, you know, seeing his comments come out. I mean, what what was your uh, emotional response and just sort of personal response to to seeing this guy take his first big world tour win since that crash? Yeah, it was pretty special to see him win. You kind of had a feeling that he was going to win uh, during this welter because, I mean, if you look at the at the sprinter field, I mean, it, if we're honest, it's not really that deep. And, you know, his injuries were more to his face. I mean, you know, he had very serious injuries. But, you know, he was saying uh, in the press conference today that his biggest barrier really was the mental part of him coming back. He said, yeah, I mean, physically I was a mess and hurt at broken bones all over. Um but, you know, his, quote, engine was not really impacted. But he said his, the mental aspect of him and his just self-confidence to move around in a bunch. And he said his first race or two back, he said he had the confidence in his sprint, but he really wasn't sure about his uh, self-confidence to really, you know, take those risks. But he said, you know, it's a real thin line as a sprinter because if you break one or two times, you're not going to be in position to win the stage. But he did admit that he is trying to be a little bit more careful, maybe not squeezing it into some of those holes that he might have done before because he said, if you crash, you're not going to win and you might not never win again. So he said it was very intense for him to, to you know, he said basically a year ago I was in the ICU and to be back winning at the Welt España. He said it's just something incredible for himself. And if you look at that win today, he had to pull a pretty amazing move to get around Dem- Arna Damar in the end. So, I mean, that's a sign that, you know, physically he's there, but mentally, psychologically, having that fast twitch muscle and that decision making to make in a, you know, split second to be able to do that, that, that uh, it was good to see. But it is going to be really interesting to follow his career because, like you said, you know, um, we've followed the careers of sprinters before and you have a crash, you have some injuries, you have some setbacks that leads to self doubt. That leads to lack of confidence. And all of a sudden you, you know, you go from being right up there and winning races to being sort of having to take risks and unnecessary risks. And it is one of the most psychologically demanding uh, positions to be in at all of sports. I feel like because of that element of it. So really psyched to see Fabio Jakobsen back on his game hoodie. Are you is like is there like a wild a pack of wild dogs following you? I feel like I've been hearing some barking in the background where you are. Are you are you safe? Are there uh, is there like the neighborhood pooches out to get you? Do you have kibbles and bits in your pockets? Like what is going on over there? Yeah, there's some uh, Spanish lobos after me. They smell uh, some good American steak. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I better bring some uh, some of the extra hot dogs when I go out for a ride later, just to fend them off. You know? That's right. I mean, we're we're gonna have to let let you go early to like deal with the uh, hyena situation in your neighborhood. Uh, but I appreciate you coming on the podcast and catching us up on the Vuelta a España. Um, Andrew Hood will be back at the race, and we will catch up with him a week from now uh, today to see what's going on in the race. Okay, let's hear from an Olympic champion. Let's go hear from Jennifer Valente. All right, now joining the podcast, as I promised, it's Jennifer Valente. Uh, Jennifer, thanks so much for making some time for us. Yeah, um, I'm happy to be here. So um, I was watching the event and fell out of my seat and was psyched, 
really happy, like I'm sure a lot of American cycling fans. And to me, when I think back on that event in general, the lasting image is you, you know, on the track with the American flag draped around your neck with tears coming out of your eyes. And I know it's been a few days since then, but I'm really curious if you can remember what the emotional cocktail was like in that moment. What were some of the different feelings? Because I'm sure there were a lot of them that were coming to you right then. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you you nailed it with the emotional cocktail. I, I think it was so many different things and I hadn't really processed it. And I, you know, leading the Omnium from, from the first race, you know, you kind of don't want to, your mind continually jumps to the end and you kind of have to bring it back and like stay in the moment. And I think I, like I did that throughout the entire points race of like back to the moment, what am I doing? Um, like how, like what's happening right now um, and not kind of letting my mind wander to the end. And then, and then when it did, we had finished and I, I think I knew I had won and it just really hadn't set in. And then everything was just like uh, overwhelming. <laughs> Was it emotions based on that moment in time or were you at all thinking about the last four years, five years, you know, the the pressure, the buildup, all of that stuff? Or was it very contained to that moment? I, I think the immediate reaction was very contained to the moment um, and probably even, you know, a couple minutes later than it just the more I thought about it, you know, it started to to really sink in of, of how much went into that result. Well, you know, so much went into that Omnium victory, and I want to get into some of the nitty-gritty of that specific race. I mean, watching another an Omnium, it just reaffirmed my belief that, you know, yes, it's this test of legs and lungs, but it's so much this test of brain power and strategy and being able to see this big picture. And, um, you know, this big moment happens so early in the race with the um, the crash in the scratch race. And I'm really curious now that you've had some time to think about it and look back on it. How do you think that one moment shaped your game plan for the remaining three events? Um, yeah. So, you know, a crash of, of that magnitude taking out a, a lot of the contenders um, and, and the majority of the field um, definitely shaped the rest of the Omnium. Uh, but I think you could say that about almost any decision that's made in an Omnium. Um you know, every chasing a break, not chasing a break, every point you get um, goes towards your total and kind of, and, and your end result. And so I think every decision that each rider makes throughout the whole day um, contributes to the overall result. Uh, and it, it really is, you know, the Omnium really is the consistency on that day. And you could rerun the, ne the same race the next day with the same riders and probably get a completely different result. And, you know, I think that's, kind of the the thing of being able to pull it all together in that moment on that day um, and just make the right decisions. And you don't know in the moment that they are the right decisions, but, um, you know, kind of just sticking with with what you're going for and, and owning it. What did your strategy become after winning the scratch race? You know, you have this early advantage. So, you know, loosely, what were you thinking of as you headed into these three events then? Yeah, the... Winning the scratch race didn't change so much my overall goal uh, or like my strategy for each race. Um, each individual race has its own plan, game plan going into it. Um, and more kind of just being aware of maybe where you sit on the overall standings. Mm -hmm. And so looking at the results of the scratch race, you know, kind of who was in that, you know, two or three 
places above and below you. Um, and then also looking at the the contenders that did crash and, and, and where they are. And, and they're obviously trying to make up points. Um, and so just being aware of that in the races that are coming forward, um, that, that there's going to be people that maybe are riding a little bit different than we expected. I also really want to drill into the decisions you made in this points race because, you know, it's the last event. It's probably the most crucial, one of the most crucial events because the points, you know, add to your overall score and there's a ton of points on offer and there's, you know, the potential to get lapped and lose points. So, you know, as you headed into that points race, um, you score an early victory, but like, what was what was the mindset and some of the the thoughts you had in the back of your mind, strategic thoughts as you headed into that points race? What were you really trying to do there? Um, well, you know, the ultimate goal was to win the Omnium. Uh, so, however many points that that took or that was going to take to win the overall, um, and not looking so much of how many times you're scoring, but but more how you're scoring compared to the people that I'm watching. Um, and I had a couple people in mind that I knew couldn't get a lap, um, and and put you know going out for the early sprint, the first sprint of the points race, um, kind of just to try and put a little bit more of a gap between myself and the Japanese rider, um, and then yeah, just continually reevaluating every every sprint and and where the points sit. Um, there's a moment there where uh, Amelie Diederichsen and Kirsten Wilde are out on the front and it's kind of this tense moment because, you know, the pack is chasing, but the chase didn't really seem that focused at that moment. I mean, what do you remember about some of the strategic thinking you were you had in, in that specific moment? Yeah, you, you know, track racing, I think the same as road racing, but track racing is so much more concentrated in that you might have your own game plan, but you kind of have to get the whole field to, to work with your game plan. Um, and, and no one can chase everybody by themselves. Um, and so just trying to keep an eye and trying to continually roll through the field and, and just, uh, you know, keep it, keep everyone motivated to kind of keep rolling, um, and not just sit up. Well, again, it was a spectacular win. I mean, back to that crash before we move on to some other stuff, you know, I talked to your coach, Ben Sharp, and he said that, you know, we, we talked a lot about, the evasive maneuver you had to take and how, you know, this sort of fast twitch muscle and reaction that you've likely spent, you know, your entire career cultivating helped you out in that moment. Um, ben also said something about how, you know, heading into that that, that finale, you were in a very specific um, position in the race that maybe wasn't to your advantage and the crash like completely changed the position you were in. I mean, what can you say about how that crash changed the actual position in the pack you were in? Um, yeah, it, it completely did. You know, I ended up on the bottom pretty boxed in and, and that was my own doing and um, had been a, a little bit of a mistake a couple laps earlier um, and just trying to figure out what I was going to do to get out of it and, and how I was going to play that. Um and there really wasn't much time to think before, you know, trying to figure out how to get out of a box to the crash happening and, and doing everything I could to not, you know, run straight into someone else. Um, and I think after the bell lap, uh, then it was again, a set like, Oh my gosh, I actually didn't crash and we have to sprint and set up for the sprint. Um, so kind of a couple of different things that happened all very quickly. And, and I, you know, kind of those subconscious decisions. So in the last few days, I've spoken with Ben, your coach, um, your dad, 
Um, even Ralph Elliott, the announcer from the local San Diego Velodrome, and they've been telling me stories and sort of giving me their feedback on you. And one thing that's kind of come up again and again is um, people have talked about your analytic personality, your ability to look at a big series of events going on and being able to process it in a very quick time. And um, obviously that is so important to something like the Omnium, but I'm really curious if that's something you feel like you've always had, or if that's something that has evolved with your track racing. Um, well, I definitely think it evolves. I, I think it evolves with everyone, you know, just like anything, you're continually learning, you're continually improving. And, you know, the more mistakes you make, you know, you try not to do those same things again. Um, but at the same time, we went into the Olympics a little bit of an unknown. We, because those decisions that are, that you can't really think about, they have to be made on instinct in the Omnium. Um, we hadn't really played out in the last year and a half. Um, you know, the last international Omnium I had ridden was the world championships in March of 2020. Um, and the same as some other riders, um, but just not having a lot of time to really sharpen those skills and doing everything we could in training to use my brain and, and try and make me think while I was working out and um, coming up with ideas of, of and talking through it and watching video um, to try and do everything we could to replicate that racing. Um, but there's no replacement for racing. And so it was a little bit of an unknown of how I was going to feel like in the field and making decisions and um, just navigating the whole environment uh, without having a lot of practice. Um, but I was pretty, I was pretty pleased at how it comes back, and I think a lot of that does come from just years and years, uh, kind of a buildup that, you know, not relying on one skill that I had learned, but rather an entire career of just like gathering knowledge and and kind of being able to pull it together, um, even though I hadn't actually raced um, in the lead up. That's interesting. And that's definitely feedback that I heard from um, some of the people in your life who I've been speaking to. Um, you know, both your dad and um, Ralph Elliott spoke about the experiences you had at the San Diego Velodrome and in the San Diego racing community. And, you know, these um, amateur races where as a junior, you're mixing it up with elite riders and, you know, riders who are much older and men and women. And um, Ralph also talked about the experience you had with your, uh, you know, your early coach, Mike, Mark Whitehead. And he said that when he saw you crash in the points race, he heard in the back of his mind, like, Mark Whitehead basically saying, get up, Jen, get up, Jen. Um, and I'm really curious when you think back to some of the mental and psychological um, attributes that you gained from your time working with Mark, um, what do you think that those experiences brought to you that you, that you now bring to cycling? Um, you know, I think as a junior, Mark Whitehead, as well as all the people, you know, that kind of helped me and, and were around me at the time as a junior coming into it, um, of really learning the whole process of things, learning about the track and, and about different types of tracks and about the racing, um, racing all kinds of different things locally, you know, points races, sprinting, Kieran's, scratch races, like, you know, random stuff that happens at local velodromes, like snowball races and um, win and outs. Um, and kind of all of that just you know, as well as learning to work on your bike and the gearing and, and what it feels like to ride different gears and to motor pace, like all these things were kind of part of the journey. Um, and I think that all contributes to, to yeah, just the, the gathering of knowledge and, and whether you realize it, um, whether you realize whether it affects anything, I think it does, mm -hmm. but... 
What about like the toughness element? I mean, the get back on your bike, you know, uh, crashes happen in these track races. And in watching that re- the replay of the event, it was like as soon as you were down, your instinct was just get back up, get back on the track. I mean, where do you feel like that instinct came from? Um, you know, I think it's different every time you crash and you kind of, at least for me, um, knowing what I want out of a race, uh, maybe affects my reaction to mishaps in the event. Um, and at the Olympic games, like having a very clear goal and what the objective was and what the purpose was and, and what I needed to do in that points race, um, probably changed how I reacted to that particular mishap, um, which was jumping up quickly trying to figure out, you know, was my bike rideable? Was it okay? Am I hurt? You know, and where does this put me? Where does this put me in the field? Who's scoring points that I'm missing? Um, and and just kind of looking how I'm going to finish that next race. Mm-hmm. So Jennifer, you know, winning an Olympic gold medal gives you a humongous platform that is going to follow you forever. And I'm really curious if you, I know it's only been a few days here, but if you've given much thought to how you want to use your uh, platform going forward, not just as an athlete, but as a person who, you know, the sport is going to look up to, people in the sport will always look up to you because of this result. And I'm really curious what you want to do with that, uh, that platform and attention. Um, I think that's a really good question and it, it's going to deserve a lot of thought, I think in the coming weeks and months and, and continually, um, I have not had the time to really process everything yet. And, and right now I'm still in just trying to just take it in and, and enjoy, enjoy the moment with the people that got me here um, before I kind of start to figure out uh, how maybe I could affect the future or change that. And what do you think, American cycling can learn from your story when you think about, you know, your entry point into the sport and how you have followed it all the way to the absolute pinnacle. What lessons do you think are there for the sport to glean? That's a tough tough question. I think that there's a lot of things that are takeaways. Um, For me, I started at a local velodrome um, and I think it's different for every athlete. For myself, uh, you know, the the not actually such a competitive environment right from the beginning, I think, changed my outlook of the sport and and kind of what it could mean and um, the community and, and making it fun. And it kind of sounds like a cliche because I think a lot of people say that, like, oh, well, don't forget to have fun. Um, but I think they're, you know, chasing an Olympic medal or an Olympic dream is such a stressful and taxing thing to do that if you don't have that foundation of enjoying some part of it and and being able to find the good things in it, um, I think it's really hard to continue. That's a perfect answer, Jennifer. I mean, that's it. You know, Um, I really appreciate that, that having the foundation of fun and the foundation of appreciation helps someone make it 10 years, 15 years from a junior all the way to the Olympics because over the last decade plus there have been moments where the sport has been unforgiving and been very difficult. And so to have that love and appreciation for it, I I, I just, I I really appreciate that answer. Jennifer, we fell out of our chairs. Uh, We love cheering for you and we will continue to follow you. I really appreciate you making time to come on the podcast and I cannot wait to see what comes next for you. 
Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs>